You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All right. Well, we are here with Steve Byrne. He is a friend to the podcast. You know him or would have known him from the What M Politics podcast. No longer publishing, but, you know, we did enjoy it during its time. It had its moment. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. I call myself a washed up podcaster these days. We had uh, <laughs> five five years and we thought that was enough. Um, yeah, finished up just at the end of 2021. I liked it a lot. I liked it. I always recommend it as a way for particularly for people on my side of the pond to just get an idea of things. Did an interview once with a green politician from Ireland and he gave such a great update on the real environment, like the status of real environmental ideas. And you had a great explanation of the abortion debate in Ireland, which was going on at that time. Just some good show. So I miss it. But I also understand nobody understands more than me, the the virtual child (laughs) of responsibility that a podcast can be. Always needs feeding. Uh, But the episodes (laughs) are still there. And if your listeners want to check it out, they can still check it out on the the back catalog. That's great. What am politics? Well, Steve, we have you on today because there's so many events going on across the pond. You know, we've talked in the past about it, but now, you know, last time we talked, I think Theresa May was still prime minister. So we have to remember her. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll I'll phrase the first question this way from a historical perspective. I did a podcast on Ramsey McDonald, who was prime minister in the 30s and 20s in the UK and was the first to officially visit the United States as as sitting prime minister. Besides that, there was this funny thing going on where after the Wall Street crash, you had Herbert Hoover in the United States, a Republican, and you had Ramsey McDonald leading the UK, a, um, a labor prime minister. So in effect, a more liberal government. But on both on the different sides of the pond, both were being blamed for the economy. And it was just this funny thing where it's like, and and McDonald had never really he he never stopped being blamed for that economy so much that they actually conservatives kept him in power because it was a great punching bag. It was like, oh yeah, keep this guy in power. You know, it'd be like in effect if uh, things got really bad and the Republicans decided. Yeah, you know what? We just keep Biden. And then as inflation goes to 80 percent or whatever, uh, we'll have him We'll keep him in the presidency. So he gets the blame and come and take government later. It was just noting how Hoover was the punching bag. There were Hoovervilles where homeless people were living. Um, People were saying, I won't vote Republican again as long as I remember the name Herbert Hoover. That was a quote from my grandmother in like 1986. She was still punishing Herbert Hoover. And then in the UK, you had this liberal government. They don't know what to do. Nothing's working. There, It's because of their liberal labor ideas. We never should have let labor run the country. And it's just funny to note that this economic um, problem that really has world tenants uh, is being received different sides on different sides of the pond. And I see that today. Biden's getting slammed over the cost of living. And so is Boris Johnson. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and as the government in Ireland are as well, pretty much everywhere in the world. And like um, the UK recently, just in Northern Ireland, had um, regional elections for the assembly in Stormont. They haven't been able to get back in because of disagreements over Brexit effectively. But the, mm-hmm. the line that's constantly being pushed both in that scandal is we need to get back and do more to stop inflation. And it's the same line. Well, we can't talk about Boris Johnson's parties. We need to talk about inflation or, you know, and 
there's all sorts of different factors going in, but the idea that one particular head of government, even in a country as large and important as the United States, is responsible for this big economic thing that's rollicking the world, you know, it's, it's a bit much. Like, there will be the inflation if Trump was in power the same way. Oh, it might, have been, uh, it might have been worse if he was signing more of those checks, probably just to to buy off more to more, more voters and things like that. Um, yeah, there's nobody can do, nobody can do anything for it, but that's the way it is. Like politicians, of course, get to blame for these things. I think I mean, we can discuss like you know th- we can discuss it on two levels. There's the philosophical political level. You're always going to blame the party in power, and I do that. And you can always game it out, and it's probably going to be a bad midterm loss for. For Democrats, unless some other factors intervene, because normally the party in power loses. But then us as individuals, I hope intelligent people start to make some distinctions. Like um, I did a I did a podcast about jobs. The president doesn't create jobs. And here's a hilarious one. I aired it in the beginning of Trump's presidency when he was taking some credit for um, literally one factory in, in, in Indiana that policies like his that Pence had done had brought the factory back to America, an American first type policy. And I and I just happened to issue the president's jobs cast on that day. It wasn't purposeful. And I got all this negative reaction. Then at the end of Trump's presidency, he's running for re-election and the economy's terrible. I aired this presidents don't create jobs, just a kind of routine airing schedule. And I got salutes from some of the Trump people. So it's just a it was a hilarious uh, thing. Um, But yeah, so going to Northern Ireland, because I think that that we're hearing some bits about that Sinn Féin won the election and that was extraordinary, right? Yeah. So the Northern Irish state was actually 100 years old last year. And Mm -hmm. it, it was created in 1921 when Ireland was getting its independence from the UK effectively to stop a larger, there was a civil war in the south of Ireland anyway, but to stop a civil war between the Unionist Protestants and the Catholic Nationalist Republicans. So they gave the Unionists this little pocket at the top of the top of the island, mm. make, made up of six historical counties within the province of Ulster, but not all of Ulster, because I'm from Donegal, but which is not, it's the north of Ireland, but is not in Northern Ireland, just to make ah, things clear. Okay, very, very <laughs> and, important. Uh, so... Uh, the unionists have always run this little stateless this little it's one of the four nations in the united kingdom it's the last part of ireland still run by the united kingdom and it has always been run by by protestant unionists who are in favor of keeping things that way and not joining up with the rest of ireland but for the first time in the state's history a nationalist republican not effectively the other sides is the largest party now that's not to say that there are more votes on the nationalist Republican side. That's not true. Mm-hmm. And if you were to add up all the votes that went towards unionist Protestants and um, candidates, there are more. But it is the first time that Sinn Féin, a nationalist party, managed to actually be larger than the next largest party, which is the DUP, the, the unionist party. So it's pretty momentous. It's led to a bit of a crisis up there um, yet again. I mean, one of the things that these guys love doing since the Good Friday Agreement brought the, the system of government out there called power sharing, mm-hmm. where you have to have representatives of each community in government sharing power um it, it effectively has been they've been, they've refused to govern for as long as they have governed by now i think there's always some crisis there's always some reason that one side will will throw down throw down the well, basically throw their toys out of the pram and say no we're not going to do this anymore so at the moment it's the dup the unionists and they will not go back into government because they say they disagree with 
um, the Brexit deal as it stands, this thing called the Northern Ireland Protocol, which mm-hmm. was designed by Boris and the European Union. Important to say Boris designed and signed up for this at the time. He forgot, he's since forgotten, but uh, it effectively moves the trade border between the Republic of Ireland. No, sorry. The, the, yeah, the trade border that the United Kingdom would have with the EU. If, if, if you were to go by the lay of the land, that would have to happen on the island of Ireland. But part of the peace process that we had in the 90s to stop the you know the troubles, the conflict with the IRA that I'm sure your listeners are well aware of. Um, we right when we they, I, I think I'll interject here just to say that when we talk about like there has to be representation in the Northern Ireland government from both part from all sides of the communities. I think we're talking about Catholic and Protestant when we talk about um, what why you need a Good Friday Agreement or why you need this provision in the Good Friday Agreement. It's obvious that. Catholics for Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland for so many years simply did not feel protected and represented enough if there was not a straight up um, easy connection to the rest of Ireland. Precisely. It's like you're not trapping us again in this nation. And um, and so that's what's so important. Exactly. And that's why the European Union, with the backing of the Irish government, had to make sure that that border wouldn't come back. I remember driving through the border when I was a kid. We'd be stopped by British soldiers. There'd be custom checks. Mm-hmm. You'd be asked, where are you going? What are you doing? It, you know. So the effective point of bringing that down was to make people who wanted to live in the North but be part of the South to feel like they could do that. That's part of the peace process. Mm-hmm. So in order to get rid of that, they the European Union said, okay, well, there, then there have to be checks on goods traveling between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. If you want to import something or export something, there's going to be a bit more paperwork to do that. But of course, if you're a Northern Ireland unionist, that's 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 insane. That doesn't make any sense because right. they think that this is their country. So now you're moving the border to you're effectively telling them that they're not part of what is their wider country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, makes sense. I, I I come down on one side of it. I would like to see Ireland unified in, in one country. I, I I you know if I if I was given a vote and hopefully I will in the future, I will vote for unification. But I do understand if you're a Northern Irish unionist and why that is an anathema to your identity. <laughs> The idea that right. there's, there's there's a border between you and the rest of your country. That's but, why when people say just compromise, yeah, you see, this is one of those classic issues where well, you can't. We can understand it from all points of view. We can say if I were a Protestant Unionist, I I, I don't know if I should always say Protestant. They're all happen to be Protestant or what? I think Unionist and Nationalist is, is probably better. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's probably best be, to take the religion out of it. They yeah. might not be. I don't know if everyone's going to church on Sunday all the time. Like, uh, quite a few of them do. <laughs> yeah, okay, they're, they're quite religious up there. It's uh, very close to the the, the 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 Baptist evangelical thing. I think in the USA uh, and some of the politics too. I think DUP is probably the strongest connection, so people understand to one of the more conservative uh, parties in the in the UK. Even absolutely, if uh, you know, it just shows you you can look at any. We can say compromise all you want, or like because if you got to vote in Ireland, well, you guys are going to outnumber them. I mean, if the whole Precisely, island yeah. voted, you know, you're going to. Well, that's them. why that's why they insisted on creating this this six counties up the north. They didn't want to be outvoted. That back mm-hmm. in the 1920s, they said uh, home rule, which was what they were calling Irish unity at the, the Irish independence, would, would be mm-hmm. Rome rule. Home rule is Rome mm-hmm. rule. I mean, they were right. <laughs> yeah. the, the Irish state ended up becoming that, like a Roman Catholic theocracy. Effectively, we've only managed to shake it off in the 90s, as you were mentioning, with our votes on um, gay marriage and abortion. Yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of that anti-Catholic rhetoric in the uh, around the same period in America when Al Smith ran for president. Like he's going to be ruled by the Pope, and it's always a little bit of 
it, 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 there's going to be a significant like influence, but yeah, the, the idea that the president was going to get a phone call from, from Rome. This raised my curiosity though. You're from the Northern part of Ireland. Do you find, are there differences that people don't know? Like, do you say, Oh, those people in Dublin don't understand me. Um, yeah, well, like I come from Donegal, which is a county mm. on the northwest coast that mm. actively uh, only actually shares two kilometers of coast with the Republic of Ireland that it's mm. part of. The rest of the coast is shared with the north, rest of its border. Um, so we kind of feel a little bit isolated because we're not part of Northern Ireland mm. and, and we're very far from the rest of the, of, of the south of Ireland. So we feel a little bit ostracized up there that, um, oh, we don't get enough funding. We don't get enough X and Y. Um, I don't know how true it is. <laughs> I haven't looked into the statistics. It is quite a poor county as they go. But at the same time, after the Good Friday Agreement, once that border opens, um, it does feel like you're driving through a different country when you go into the north. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's very familiar. It's, um, I guess that's the best way to describe it. Like the Northern Ireland is a separate place. There are separate people and it feels like a different place. But at the same time, it feels more familiar than any other country it's it's a hard thing to describe i guess i get maybe some americans feel it when they go to toronto or something like that it's like oh sure this feels the same but it is different i remember going to vancouver yeah and uh you know okay yeah. different country i don't know one starbucks on the corner away from the other one um <laughs> felt pretty good that they talk loonies and toonies i get it but uh you know yeah no no certainly certainly the case and so so yeah, this is holding up. Um, yeah, this is this this problem is a is holding up the government. What do they do in the meantime in Northern Ireland? Is there some amount of like okay, emergency budgets get passed while there's no government, some form of governmental life that occurs? Yeah, there's there's a, there's a couple of contingencies built into their mm. system up there to to try and keep it going. But effectively, there is a ticking clock after the election. And um, if they refuse to form a new government, there has to be another vote within six months. Mm-hmm. If they still can't form another government after that, it goes back to direct rule from London. So there is no local government in Northern Ireland and the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, who would be part of the British government, runs it directly. Okay. Which okay. is, it's effectively the worst case scenario. They don't want that to happen. No one will. Yeah, that won't be popular with either group, I no. imagine. No. no. Like, for example, Northern Ireland is one of the only places in either Ireland or the UK that you can't get an abortion. It's it's currently outlawed there, which mm-hmm. is totally different to the rest of the United Kingdom, but has had it, had it there since the 70s. So the, the Northern Protestants, and they are in this case Protestants, would be very afraid of London imposing more liberal laws and those kind of things if they were to have full control of it, because what would be, what would be there to stop them from bringing in line to the rest of the UK? So they, in that sense, they would be quite eager to try and get it back. But effectively, I think they're going to try and pull some sort of political stroke in their mind. They want to try and get Boris to fix this um, this Brexit problem, this hangover from mm-hmm. from the deal that they did back in 2019, 2020, and that they can take that back and then become the largest party. Because nobody is really saying this. Um, Michelle O'Neill, who's the head of Sinn Féin in the North, she is being called the first minister-elect, which is the name of the, the, fact, the prime minister of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what, what the DUP can't stomach is... A nationalist first minister and that's also part of that's one of the unspoken reasons that they won't go back into government because that would that would kind of nullify the point that they have this this state in the north to keep themselves separate to keep themselves in charge i think if they were to allow that to happen effectively the ticking clock on the united the, the unification of ireland will start in earnest then as well and they don't want that that northern ireland story is so important 
we have vestiges of it only, which I guess is a good thing because it's such a sad story, but you see documentaries about it. It's alive in U2 songs of the past and for people. I mean, and Bono is certainly singing about a, a very neutral view on that conflict that was, I think, present in Ireland in the 80s. Like, hey, I don't think I'm on your side. This is not a rebel song. I am not for this violence and violent and where that turned is a classic world story uh, of what must never happen to, again. And that yeah. actually both sides, Sinn Féin and, and the Protestants are large groups of both sides. The key thing to say uh, is not all on both sides gave up violence, fortunately with a lot of prodding from Bill Clinton and, and, um, and also Tony Blair, even John major, a little, has been an example of the world. I know, for instance, they go, Northern Ireland folks go to the Middle East and talk to the Israelis and the Palestinians. They were, there was some influence on the Bosnia uh, situation. So. Yeah, yeah. I was part I was part of something like that, um, a building called the Clinton Center in a town of mm-hmm. Enniskillen. Um, they did a, a, a cross-community peace process thing. I was invited up as part of my college course at the time, about 10 years ago. And there were um, students there from Serbia, from Kosovo, and there mm. were a pair of Palestinians and a pair of Israelis. Everyone else got along except for those two. Would you believe that they weren't able to figure out their conflict? That that, <laughs> that didn't go well on the trip. And um, just to say as well, in, in terms of the current process, the United States are getting quite involved. And Nancy Pelosi made a statement mm. recently saying that... Um, any move to change the, the the Brexit protocol as it stands will be looked unfavorably upon the U.S. government. It's pretty significant. It'll scare any British diplomats as they're looking at what at what to renegotiate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, there was a I guess a, a congressional delegation, I guess you call it, led by uh, Richard Neal. I think he's uh, in Massachusetts. He was recently doing a tour of all the different parliaments. So he was up north talking to the Northern Ireland representatives. I think. Just at the end of last week, he was in Leinster House talking to our politicians. And presumably his next stop is going to be over across the way in London to talk to the um, to talk to the British politicians to see if they can try and get something sorted out. Because effectively, if Boris does manage to strike some kind of a deal with the EU, which is hard because the EU are like, oh, for God's sakes, we've been through this for so long. Like you, you, you wrote this deal and you signed it. So what's wrong? Why, why do we have to do it again? But if they do manage to give him some concessions and he can use that to wave around again, and the DUP will be pressured to go back. And hopefully we'll have, we'll have some kind of a government before maybe the end of the summer or something like that. Yeah, we got to. Well, the U.S. has to provide an example of stopping you guys from fighting while we beat the hell out of each other over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, but I think it's just a classic example of unspeakable violence in an area that's a, where the culture was so close to us. And it was actually a bit of a foreign policy victory for Bill Clinton that he doesn't get a lot of credit for it. But for him, look, I mean, there's a lot of politics here. Um, one thing I've noticed in my own lifetime and where I happen to live in the, in the in the New York City area is, for instance, I mean, I recall in the 90s, just British folks telling me, you know, they're not really comfortable there. They weren't made welcome in New York City. You go to you go to an Irish pub in the 80s or 90s and the British person waits Waits. I remember someone saying, Bruce, we got served because you were with us in the yeah. in the late 90s before the Good Friday. And frankly, recently, I have noticed that change. 
Some of it's the economics that New York is cheaper for a British person. It's very welcoming. There are a lot of British folks and Irish folks always in New York City and America in general. Just a much more noticeable British accent in the streets of Manhattan. Uh, I saw two British guys. One was interviewing the other for a job uh, in a Starbucks. So it's just this <laughs> kind of like my point being um, we you know, has an impact on the U.S. too. Uh, we yeah. must never go back and we can't do it here too. We don't, the worst thing would be for us to repeat what happened there with, an, with English speaking peoples. Uh, well, this is great. I actually like that we're focusing on the island of Ireland because I think that's where you actually live. I bring you on as the UK expert because you know a lot about it and it's fascinating. But let's talk a little bit more about that. Like, let's talk about the Irish government. Is there currently, I don't know if there's an election going on, but is there currently a lot of talk of high prices? Oh sure, yeah. I mean, we've we've had a housing crisis. Is what we've been. It's been the primary issue on our political agenda probably for about ten years. The price of housing, just like everywhere in the world, I guess, is skyrocketing. Mm. Um, it was a housing crisis that took down our economy back in the uh, the big recession. So it it never really fell off our agenda. It was always a big thing. Either people couldn't find anywhere to rent, or they they can't afford where to buy, et cetera, et cetera. So, but that and then um, fuel prices are skyrocketing just like everywhere else, and just like everyone else, everyone is looking to the government saying, what can you do? And we have a, we have a, we have actually a pretty historic coalition. It's the first time that the two center slash center right parties have come together. These are the two parties that actually fought a civil war after we got independence and they're, they're the, they're what's left of the two camps. So we have Fianna Fáil who back in the day were led by Eamon de Valera. If, you, if you've seen um, the, uh, the Michael Collins movie, he was played by um, Alan Rickman uh, very famously. So they are they, they, they're the people who disagreed with the treaty and wanted to keep on fighting for a full republic, but then ended up coming into politics. They're currently in power with Fine Gael, the party who wanted to sign up to the, to, to the treaty and, and govern. The two of them hated each other for about 100 years, and finally realized that in order to keep out Sinn Féin down here, they had to join together to form a coalition with the Greens, and they're in power at the moment as well. So, yep, they're governing, trying their best. Um, Fine Gael are quite fiscally conservative. Um, they're, they, they have the finance ministry at the moment, they, so they, they basically have the keys to the safe, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be too eager to start throwing money around. Um, there's, there's talk in the UK at the moment of a windfall tax on energy companies to try and yes. claim back some of their profits. There's no talk like that over here because it, it wouldn't it just wouldn't get through really. And also, like our, our country is so much smaller than the UK. Like uh, how much how much would we actually get from from bringing in taxation like that? So, Are there oil reserves in Ireland? No, no, we don't have any decent natural resources. Mm-hmm. There was talk of um, doing offshore drilling for gas and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the, thankfully, the, we're, we're starting to move away from carbonization. In your area in the north, um, driving versus public transit? Uh, for public transportation in Ireland is pretty terrible. Okay. <laughs> and they used to have trains going across the country when the British left, mm-hmm. and they're all gone now. There's only a handful between the cities. Dublin has some relatively decent transport, but the rest of the country doesn't have much. It's all driving. Okay. Yeah, it's all okay. I don't think a lot of people, I don't know if they know it or not know it, but they think everything Europe, they think, they think there's some magic train. We yeah, hear about no, fascinating uh, trains here. <laughs> I, re- I really wish we did. It'd be really nice if I could get a train home. But no, they, as, I, as I was told repeatedly in the bars by the old man back home, they took that away in 1952. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. In America, I was looking from New Jersey to New Orleans and realized it would take almost almost three days wow. to get there by Amtrak train. Yeah. 
when you were talking about uh, our, our former guest Ed, um, he mm. the the Green Party representative. He's actually working with the Green Party in government now. He's not a representative himself. He's in the back room, but they're doing an awful lot of work trying to bring in policies to change our infrastructure. So there was a lot of funding for cycle lanes. That's quite mm. effective because Ireland is a small place. Most of the towns are close together. Mm. Um, there there is some extra money going into public transport, but probably not too many big projects on the horizon. Kind of just upgrading what we have. Um, yeah, there is. There's definitely a big shift towards that, um, which is convenient considering that it costs an awful lot to drive anywhere at the moment. So it's just like everybody else, everywhere else. Uh, I want to talk about um, we 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 went to through some of the um, the beginning of the Irish Republic. Uh, when am I going to say 1921? We got independence from the UK in 22, and we became a republic in the 50s. Oh, so 100 years is that? Yeah, is yeah. That coming up, that's, or that's. Uh... Uh, that's coming up soon. Okay, uh, we're we're just about to celebrate our centenary of our civil war, so this one's a uh-huh. bit more uncomfortable. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. That's why I'm not here. Okay, yeah, hearing hearing as much, um, and and a lot of the run up to that was the fact that in World War One, there were more than a few Irish that were like, well, if we could maybe cut a deal with Germany here, we could be out of this. Um, obviously for a lot of legitimate reasons, Ireland wasn't happy, but you had this kind of like almost neutrality in Ireland. That's World War II, World War II. World War II, but World War One as well? I mean, no, well, we weren't, we, we were part of the British Empire then, we were real directly oh, from I London. realize that on paper, but I'm talking about hearts and minds no, here. 400,000 Irish people fought for, for the oh, British Army in World yeah, War One. Yeah. Um, there were a handful that stayed behind and set up what became the IRA, and they mm-hmm. tried to do a deal with Germany. They tried okay. to get a, a boat with guns over, but it ended up getting caught, which is okay. why the 1916 rebellion failed. Um, no, uh, most of the hearts and minds of Ireland were pro-British until okay. they weren't. <laughs> no, happy to be corrected on that point. Good to, that I, I overstated the point on that then, that there was yeah, there I, might be a little group, but yeah. The history was skewed a bit. When we got independence, we kind of wanted to forget any association that we had with the rest of the British Empire. So we wanted to set ourselves out as this Gaelic nation that was always fighting mm-hmm. for our freedom and mm-hmm. independence, which wasn't entirely true. Like, obviously, there were many movements to try and get different um, benefits and independence, and we were being effectively oppressed. But it, it has to be mentioned as well that we did send hundreds of thousands of soldiers to fight for the British army. And we did in World War II as well. We were yeah. neutral in World War II. We didn't get involved on either side, but we didn't stop Irish people from joining up to the Allied forces and hundreds of thousands did for that war as well. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, 
Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Yeah, I can't imagine that people were favorable to the Nazis, but you you, you stay you stay neutral. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to think the British, you know, it, it's the same in America. I mean, I think the American Revolution without question gets glorified. I have also talked about some of the real deep differences and why it probably had to happen and all of that. But I also think in the embroidery and the um, images and stories, it gets it gets oversold. I mean, we also had people who profited greatly yeah. from being part of a big empire and it's questionable if we got to go would have got a foot off the ground without it and uh and things like that well but, new york uh, was a loyalist city wasn't it until, new, until it was yeah. people forget that that uh, when yorktown happened <laughs> new york wasn't free yet the funny thing that happened is it's politics as well because there's less celebration of when when new york was actually let go and and the british got on a ship and left in the 18, um, 1783. There's less celebration of that because in New York politics, the Tammany Hall organization closely allied to the Irish vote, the Irish-American vote. You know, anything that the more Protestant part of New York, more reform-minded and Republican area, you know, could do to clamp down some of their fur and not and not be used for politics, they would do. So a little less of that celebration. Also, anything about British prison ships, which were a horrible story, kind of got buried as well. So we had burying on both sides. We glorified the revolution, but also things that were really bad, like the British use of prison ships were also buried because they were worried about Tammany Hall. You Every time Tammany Hall needed an election win, they bring out the British prison ships again. Yeah, and so yeah, that yeah. kind of got buried more and they removed, for instance, remnants of the actually pulled out artifacts of the ship out of the harbor so that they wouldn't be there to rally around and things like that. But what a tangent. But in any case, I just wanted to get into the... Uh, the neutrality right now of um, Ireland, uh, sure. Ukraine situation. And I don't think a lot of listeners are probably aware of it. So maybe you could explain. Yeah, well, um, just like the rest of the, of the world, especially in this region, I guess, because we're closer to it, we have been rocked by by the invasion of Ukraine by mm-hmm. Russia. And we've seen it coming, obviously, with everybody else. But at the same time, it really hit home to see, to see, you know, early 20th century, 19th century politics back on the agenda again, you know, settling disagreements with tanks instead of, agreements mm-hmm. in Switzerland or Brussels or whatever. Yeah, it was. It's quite frightening. Um, and it has sparked up a debate as to where Ireland should be. So um, starting from World War II, Ireland didn't want to get involved in Britain's wars anymore. So we didn't. Our, our government at the time wanted to differentiate itself as much as it could. So it took a, it took a position of neutrality in World War II. And um, we actually ended up getting punished by it, by the Soviet Union after the World World War II. We weren't allowed to join the United Nations for about five or six years because they were like, well, you're neutral. So why would you be allowed uh, to join? <laughs> but yes. we have since we have since been allowed to join and we've made um, 
peacekeeping operations, a big part of our international um, persona, I guess you could say. We, we do have a defense forces. It's not very big. It's not very well funded. But we do send troops abroad to um, conflict situations as part of UN delegations. And we, get, we do get a lot of um, acclaim and credit for that. Um, and, and recently, we, we ran a big campaign to get onto the Security Council. We had to stand for a vote in the UN General Assembly. We were against Norway and Canada, I think, and we managed to beat them. And we, we managed to say, look, we're a neutral party in this. We, we, we're not part of NATO. We're not, we're not part of Russia's thing. We're not part of China's thing. So you can depend on us to be decent arbiters in this. But in reality, we're not really neutral. So we're not like Austria. We weren't created mm-hmm. with neutrality built into our constitution as part of the settlement after some war. Mm-hmm. We, it, it, there is something in our constitution about we can only join a war if it has been agreed by the United Nations. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, there isn't really anything to say that we're officially neutral. It's just something that we say about ourselves and that we kind of understand about ourselves. But that gets a bit tricky when you have things like um, the United States using Shannon Airport down in Limerick to transport troops to Iraq during the the, the second Iraq war. Um, we're also famously, we, we, we're very close to America. You know, if we weren't pro-Soviet Union during the Cold War, we may, we may not have been part of NATO and have had troops, but we were definitely on that side. And, you know, right. since then, we're obviously, we're not on Iran's side. We're not on, we, you know, we were China's side while the money was good, but now that the world is telling the tilt away from that, we're not on that. And obviously we're not on Putin's side. So we we do sit in the Western mm-hmm. area and the debate at the moment now, and I think uh, some people are getting braver to talk openly about wanting to, to ditch neutrality and to take up uh, membership of NATO. Effectively, we're worried that the world is thinking that we're just not pulling our weight, that the reason we're not part of NATO is to save a few bucks on bullets and bombs, that mm-hmm. if we were to actually join, we would have to put more money into our defense forces, as are the requirements of NATO. But at the same time, these 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 political people are saying that's what we have to do to be to be to, to properly represent ourselves on the world stage we have to do it. we have to like denmark is part of it's a small country small european country but it has a mm-hmm. significant military and has a big a big part to play in nato and if if war is back in europe and and you know the world's only going to get more dangerous then it'll it, it makes sense to join these clubs but there are a lot of people on the other sides and they, they come from a mix of does it different spread political... across the parties it does it spreads across the parties yeah it, it does like there, there's no one party that hasn't like has mm. a unified umbrella policy of um joining nato for example there'd be mm. a couple of people in the two main parties and a, f- a few independents as well but Sinn Féin who are now a rising party in the south as well as the north and are likely to be the next governing party they have had a tradition of anti-imperialism so they you know Unless, I, I, unless your listeners aren't aware, effectively they were the IRA part. They were the IRA party. Mm. They, they they were the political wing of the IRA, which was the insurrectionist groups in Northern Ireland, and they had a lot of links a lot around the world to all sorts of independence movements and revolutionary fighters and all these kind of things. And with that, they have a, a strong Marxist, effectively anti-imperialist, um, like um, heritage, if you want to call it that. They're trying very hard to ditch it because they want to be the largest party in Ireland. And most Irish voters are fairly run-of-the-mill standard centrists and, you know, would kind of be aghast to think that you were working with Chavistas or Cuba or whatever. Mm-hmm. So Sinn Féin want to normalize themselves a little bit. They actually recently deleted 5,000 statements off their website to try and get rid of um, previously pro-Putin statements and uh, 
oh, look at it on both sides kind of statements about Iran and that kind of stuff. Um, and now they are obviously openly against Putin's war. But there are some Irish politicians who are pro-Putin. We have two MEPs, um, Claire Daly from Dublin and Mick Wallace from Wexford, who sit in the European Parliament. I, I don't even know if they sit with a grouping or if they just count as independents there, but they they actively stand up and speak saying that the war in Ukraine is America's fault and that we need to effectively Ukraine needs to cede the land that Russia wants in order to make uh, Putin happy. Oh, so they're, they're like Kissinger then. Uh, I would I would not give them any kind of intellectual credibility like that, but they've become internationally famous effectively in what you want to call the wrong places, places like Iran, places like China and Russia are, are sharing their store, their speeches and things. And uh, so it's this confusing thing where we have these. I can definitely give somebody some slack, like a party like Sinn Féin having to erase things from the website because of what we just talked about. You just talked about we don't are usually argue with tanks. Putin jumped like five steps ahead in a lot of ways. I mean, yes, you probably should have seen it coming and all that. Okay, but if you're still making the Putin statements now after what we know, I think. Well, just just to give another example, the, the, and these kind of things have been picked up since. They didn't really get much attention in Irish media before because we just kind mm-hmm. of wrote them off as crackpots, to be honest. Um, they were in Syria trying to claim that the chemical attacks that were happening there during the civil war of the past 10 years were American. So the link, the link thing, the thing, the theme that they have is that they are anti-American because they're Mm. in in their eyes, they're anti-imperialist. And this comes from back when Ireland permitted the U S to use Shannon to transport troops for the Iraq war. That, that aggravated a lot of people, including Mm. these people. And that that's effectively what's left of that political wing now as it goes. And that's what makes our neutrality debate, if you want to call it that, pretty confusing. I think ultimately it's going to be hard to have a proper debate about it. We're probably just going to fudge it like we do most things. Some people are going to talk about it vaguely, but not be brave enough to stand up and actually advocate for it. And I think the the old fashioned, oh, well, let's just keep our head under the radar and and see how it all blows out will continue. So assuming Putin doesn't invade any other European countries, I think it probably will fizzle out and we'll just keep on with this um, this general yeah, i think you need you need a few neutral or semi neutral countries out there to help negotiate later perhaps well that's um, that's that's our argument as well yeah yeah um well great i actually love that we've talked mostly about ireland because i think in our past discussions it's just been a lot of uk and i think Don't worry about it bruce i'm happy to talk about the uk if you want to move on there <laughs> well i'm from new jersey i'm used to getting having a bigger um having a bigger entity like new york just eclipsing us all the time you know but yeah anyway but yeah let's jump to the uk i mean boris johnson let's just start there his situation and what we think you know yeah yeah so there's this thing another the uk politics the the least favorite thing about about following uk politics is that every two or three months they have a new gate so thanks to you fine fellows over (laughs) in the united states who invented watergate ever since then every single political scandal in the united kingdom Uh gets tagged with a gate even to the point we had a gate gate (laughs) (laughs) where where a politician got in trouble for how he spoke to a security guard at at the number 10 security gate (laughs) And that became Gategate. So anyway, at the moment, we have Partygate. Partygate is about um, effectively what has been proven to be entirely true, is that civil servants and politicians in uh, the physical building of Number 10 Downing Street, the prime minister's office and home, um, partied very hard over COVID lockdowns. 
So United Kingdom, as I'm sure everyone knows, was quite badly hit by the, by the COVID um, crisis. It has, I think, among the highest death toll, certainly in the United Kingdom, if not the world, in terms of population as well. And they went into quite strict and severe lockdowns, um, no social gatherings, businesses closed, people told to isolate at home, that kind of thing. You know, we're all very familiar with how it went. While that was happening, there were all sorts of different gatherings and parties going on in number 10, which managed to stay under the radar, but then started to leak slowly Mm. as things started to open up again, to the point that it became very clear that people in number 10 were taking the piss, as we say, and were just partying nonstop. And then it turned out that Boris was at these parties as well. In, in photographs, he was. And didn't he speeches. first say that he wasn't? Yeah, he, he so he, he broke the cardinal rule of the good chaps UK polit- political system where he, he went into parliament and he effectively misled parliament. Now, he doesn't say he misled parliament. He says, so what he said is, I'm sure I, I'm not aware of these events, but I'm sure that whatever happened followed the rules at the time. And he would sit I'm not, down. I'm not aware of what happened, but I'm sure they followed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he exactly. does that kind of talk it's that we bur- had. A, our last president was pretty. Hey, listen, I mean, I think it's a useful political tactic because look at it. You can it, it gives you a little bit of smoke screen, but it's yeah, it's pretty obvious what's being done there when you talk yeah. like that. I think so, I don't know. I think if I did, I'm a gentleman. I really wish him well, but I did. did. <laughs> <laughs> he managed to he managed to he managed to push it off the headlines that came up around uh, November last last year. He managed to push it out of the headlines briefly by saying, "I'll hire uh, one of the top civil servants to investigate it." A lady called Sue Gray, mm-hmm. and then he managed to avoid it because the 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 London Metropolitan Police had to investigate it, which stalled Sue Gray's report. They had to investigate it. They ended up fining a hundred and odd people, including Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He's the first sitting prime minister to have been given a, crim- a criminal conviction effectively. Um, I think it, it's, a, it's a fine of a hundred odd pounds that were around at the time for if you were caught breaching COVID regulations. But it, I mean, if this is any other politician, they'd be out on their arse. In yeah. fact, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, he's in a little bit of trouble because there's a photograph of him eating a curry and drinking a bottle of beer at an office. So I saw that photo, right. And then put that in context versus Boris. Versus Same Boris, thing? who's standing at parties, who's mm. who's like, uh, oh, like I mean, the the details of the parties have come out now. There were vomit on the walls. They were they were lugging suitcases full of wine. I mean, and on the night before the the funeral of Prince Philip, the Queen's husband. That was a, I they, hear that a lot. Yeah, yeah, that brought up. And then I think I think for American listeners, where first of all we have a little bit of this, like Gavin Newsom and some governors have been caught like no mask or yeah, caught in a Nan- restaurant eating. Nancy Pelosi but, had a haircut. But the the lockdowns weren't always as strict and they were locally changed by local rules and things like that. But you've got a few um, governors and and I don't know that mask wearing has ever been enforced well. And I had a president who was having parties at the White House and things. And those were little scandals here, I think, in or, or in the UK. It's so much stronger because the lockdowns were very intense and penal and criminal penalties and the like. Um, I think the most in the U.S. you'd get is, I mean, outside of workplaces, it would be, oh, you really should be inside. Um, Whereas here, it's like there were fines and things. And on the other hand, I do want to also contextualize for American, and and this is really not to defend, but Parliament is quite a place of drinking. Um, Oh, yeah, it's got eight bars in, in in, in Westminster Abbey. They live there. I mean, they're just there all the time. That's their argument. They live there. They have to have restaurants. They have to, but it is a drinking culture. I mean, the, the the Tories and a lot of the labor, I mean, it's just you get elected a member of parliament. 
there's there's a lot of drinking. I've heard complaints about this. We have some there's even some harassment behavior and and hooliganism that's being that's another issue that they're dealing with now. But um, it is a little bit of a culture that's just they didn't stop, apparently, for COVID at all. And then so that was Boris Johnson appearing at parties and then Keir Stormer, the Labour Party, the big opposition party. They just caught him through the blinds of a window. Well, yeah, I actually I do want to defend the politician here. And it's a very rare yeah. thing that I will defend a politician. But in Keir's Ooh. defense, it was they were they were canvassing in a by-election and mm-hmm. he was having some food after walking around outside all day with his colleagues. And he has said that if the police decide to give him the same punishment they gave Boris, he will immediately step down as Labour leader. Whereas Boris has wriggled and slipped his way and managed to, to scoot scoot out of out of danger. First, he was using um, the invasion of Ukraine as the reason why you can't get rid of him because, oh, the UK need to stand strong in front of Putin's aggression. Load of crap. And then uh, he was using, yeah, now he's using the cost of living crisis that we were talking about earlier. So apparently... If Boris leaves, inflation will get higher or something like that. I don't know what he's trying to say, but it's just it's it's a load of cod. He's effectively the I think the Tory party want to get rid of him, but they don't have any good replacements. They don't have anyone uh-huh. sitting in the wing that can come in to replace him. There isn't the equivalent of Gordon Brayer sharpening his knife, sharpening the knife. There was briefly mm-hmm. Rishi Sunak, who's the, the British Minister of, of Finance, but he or the Chancellor of the Exchequer as they call him over there, but he actually got issued a, a fixed penalty notice. Uh, as well so he he, he uh. got caught at one of these parties so that kind of took him down a few pegs and it also turns out that his wife is a um has 750 million pounds offshore that she doesn't pay taxes on so that doesn't look good so his um his spotlight dropped away pretty quickly and once he was gone there isn't really anybody else in the tory party at the moment that can get rid of him very quickly so they said oh after the local elections we'll see how they do the tories got hammered they did very badly across the country the bars is still there uh, what I keep hearing, and and it may, and it may be from more of a conservative side. I mean, the media in the UK is very conservative biased, so it's very, at least the newspaper. So it's very difficult sometimes to suss out as an American. I mean, we can look at the Guardian and balance a bit, but they might go oh. far too far the other direction. The BBC is your is your helpful there. Another thing that's a hundred years old this year. They are they are a genuine bastion of communication. Yeah, they're they they're pretty good. It's it's just when I need to grab something. Yeah. Uh, but the. The uh, the argument I do here is, okay. this is true. Boris Johnson, you know, terrible or whatever. But there isn't a lot of support for Keir Starmer and the Labour government. Oh, well, I mean, they are ahead in the polls at the moment, Mm -hmm. but not by as much as you would expect for for the the economic situation. Uh, They they should be doing better than they are. Keir is not a good He's, he's not a, he's not the Tony Blair that they're looking for, basically. Mm -hmm. And and they still carry the heavy shadow of, of Jeremy Corbyn hanging over them. Um, I mean, they, they labor can't really figure out what they should be about yet. They, mm-hmm. they, they still have the, the, the Jeremy Corbyn, who was a terrible, terrible idea, but effectively ingrained in them this, this quite hard left culture that they, they can't really shake, both, both um, economically and culturally, politically as well, if you mm-hmm. want to call it that. So, for example, Keir Starmer. And foreign policy. Fit, um, foreign policy, he definitely was, but he was he he kept quiet. Keir mm. Starmer has swung them way back to mm. to, the, to the regular UK foreign policy. They, mm. they they wouldn't be out of line with that now. It's just he he struggles when he's asked a lot of questions, and he 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 like for example, um, he quite often gets asked, uh, "What's your definition of a man and a woman?" You know the trans issues. It's 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 politically salient all around the world. Um, he's not brave enough to say what he really believes, so he usually ends up fudging it. 
in order to not piss off either side. And that just ends up making him look weak. Yeah, so, it's a it's an interesting, you know, my my read on it, the political situation in the UK is is strange for that reason that the main liberal party, I think we kind of have this in America, but the main liberal party cannot afford to lose its working class um, factory based, you know, um, base, which is in a lot of cases pro Brexit um, yep. and not a fan of some of the more real liberal ideas there. They're totally a fan of supporting labor itself. But uh, and you have the problem. I mean, we we kind of have been in the Democratic Party. It's just I think Democrats here have done kind of the new labor thing since Clinton and picked up more of middle class and suburban voters. Actually, though, Obama's recently as 2012 was fumbling on same sex marriage. And so yeah, we yeah. had it. You know, we have the cultural issues are are tough. So you have that that kind of weakened opposition. Well, you got Scotland too. The Labour Party used to bank on at least 40 to 50 MPs out of there, which would often get them over the majority. They're all SNP now. That's not theirs anymore. And that's not coming back. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to figure out how Labour can get over the line. It's possible if they get into an election, you could do a coalition with them or do some kind of budget coalition. It's uh, the coalition with the SNP is a third rail. You can't really talk mm. about that because the, the Labour Party are as unionist in terms of keeping the UK united mm. as the Tory party would be. They mm. don't want to get, they don't want to give any concessions to that. Um, in fact, do you remember Ed Miliband? He was yes. two, two, two leaders ago of the Labour Party, I believe. Mm-hmm. He got beaten quite badly by Cameron because of a poster that had um, the, the leader of, of the SNP at the time, Alex Salmond, up on a billboard with a little Ed Miliband in his pocket, in his, in his, in his shirt <laughs> pocket. So the imp- implication <laughs> being that vote for Labour, you're just giving SNP the but, government. But let me ask the real question, though, then. I understand the political posturing, but Keir Stormer needs 40 votes to form a government. Doesn't he go up north and talk to the SNP after the election? Perhaps. I mean... The, the Liberal Party, they're still around as well. The Liberal Democrats. Liberal Democrats the confusing but not thing. too many seats, not too many. They're actually doing quite well at the moment. Mm-hmm. So this yeah, is okay. this is usually where they shine. And um, back in, uh, since it's a history podcast, we can talk about it. Sure. Back in sure. the 70s, they did very well. When when people were fed up with both the Tories and, and Labour, they did quite well. Again, that was the same thing with them in the 2000s during the Iraq war. They did quite well. And mm-hmm. now it looks like they're going to do very well in a lot of by-elections coming up and likely will do well in the general. Um, to the point that they'll have... 30 or 40 seats in a 600 person parliament. It's not much, but it would be enough to swing. And I don't think they'll go back into government with the Tories in any time soon. They're still hurting after they did that with David Cameron. Oh, um, yes. But there is a good chance that they would talk to, to Labour. And as you say, if it came to it that they still needed some SNP votes to get over the line, there's a possibility that a deal could be done. But it, it would hurt it would hurt whatever Labour government did at the time. My money's on it not being Keir Starmer. I think um, I think they're going to they're going to sh- they're going to shake him off before the next election. But they do have a couple of decent politicians in the wing. And um, I'll just talk briefly about one guy. Sure, there's a guy called Andy Burnham. Okay, he's the mayor. He's the mayor of Manchester, and he is, I guess, if you want to describe him, he's a very working class, very opinionated, very strong personality guy. And he he was around in the Blair. Uh, brown days but he managed to step away from national politics create this little fiefdom up in manchester but he's doing well up there and there's always the possibility that he'll jump back down to london to take the reins if things happened if 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 kira was to is get, he there is he dumped. there boris 
Uh, no, no, no. He's he's like um, I don't know what. The force without the mistakes. He's got the personality. He's got the force of personality. But not. he has a force of personality in the in the sense that he'd be known mm. as Andy in the same way mm. that Boris is known as Boris. But he combs his hair. He combs his hair. He looks professional, and <laughs> uh, people know how many children he has. Unlike the prime minister. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the- I think because uh, so that's a possibility. They get a di- labor gets a different leader. Be when do you think that there would be an election? There has to be an election by 2024, and I don't see any reason why Boris would call it before then. Okay. He, has, he has a stonking majority. Um, he got that in 2019 with the Bre- when Brexit was still on mm. the agenda. I think he will. he's going to suffer a lot with by-elections between now and then, but there'll be no reason why he'd call an early one. I can't, like with the way the economics is going to happen, people are going to be hurting in their pockets. They're going to mm. want to lash out against the government. There's no reason why he would call it earlier. So 2024, probably around um, the fall. Okay, so that's a lot of time. You could have two different leaders. Could possibly they could get rid of Boris? Although I think my own thing when I saw him in Kiev with Zelensky, yeah, and uh, I said, you know, I got to I got to hand it to him there. That's a good move. And it was like, you know, no one now everyone's going to Kiev. I mean, now it's yeah. He did that to to avoid having to answer why he was drinking glasses of wine during lockdown. Just to give that. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> I know that that's true. I know, but it. But nonetheless, but he, did. he did it. He did it, and it created another reason. I also think there's this force of personality. You know, I saw. Um, I, I watched Prime Minister's questions. I I saw Tony Blair as opposition leader. I saw John Smith before. I'm weak, weak. John Major was having his way with him. Uh, I saw. Um, I saw. Um, Tony Blair's opposition leader, great zinging questions. And even as prime minister, totally beating the pants off William Hague. And then David Cameron was beating up an an older Tony Blair on that opposition stage. I don't think it's for anyone who doesn't know the PMQs. That's the labor leaders show. That's the opportunity. That's your weapon. You have to use it. When I see Keir Stormer, I almost find him on the defense of reading his notes, looking down. Now, you know, my perception of things isn't every. In fact, Cor- Corbin once in a while had some good moments after a really rough start. He once in a while had some good moments, particularly him and Johnson, where, where it was interesting to watch and, and, and things like that. But Stormers, it seems terrible to me. And that's your opportunity to, to go after him. Um, I think they have to get a different person there yeah no he hasn't shined at all like everyone assumed that he would be the great um unifying figure he was um you know he was he was pro-brexit but was willing to give it up and it just wants to talk about getting brexit done and, and moving it on and moving the labor party on and obviously he would be close to a blairite but not quite as mm-hmm. as as, as right wing is if you want to call it that as a blairite so they were hoping he was but he's, he's turned out to be a bit of a, a flop he's just not he doesn't have as you say the force of personality he hasn't shined in any situation i mean I guess you could kind of say COVID has taken up most of the time. So it's it's kind right. of hard to to bash the government. And um, to give Boris and his government credit, they did have a fantastic um, vaccination program that, that they led the, they led Europe in terms of vaccinations. Europe, um, really? I don't think that's another thing I don't think Americans are aware of. Uh, yeah. Does that include Ireland, where Europe went with this astro? Uh, not uh, Europe went with a just the negotiating of the vaccines. They bought it all in bulk, but it was late and it was... Yeah, yeah, we pooled. Couldn't get. We, yeah, we were part of the European pool, so we mm. were. So, for example, Richie, who was my co-host yes. um, on Modern Politics, he lives in London, so he managed to get his vaccine about four or five months ahead of anyone uh, over here. Um, that's terrible. You know, and and he's a young, 
male without any pre-line underlying conditions. So there was no reason he was going to skip the queue. That's just they had mm-hmm. them. Um, whereas, yeah, we, we it took a little bit longer to get it get into Europe. Um, like that that was, I guess, why he wasn't able to shine then. I don't think many voters are going to remember that for the next thing. I think Boris is just going to bleed and bleed and bleed until they will be damaged quite badly in the next election. And then the Tories are probably going to go through. Actually, it's, I think it's going to take a long time for the Tories to recover after Boris. It's, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're talking about sure. what the conversations they're going to have to have. But I think it will be, you know, the era of William Hague and what was that other guy's name? I can't even remember him now. He ended up becoming the pension secretary. But like they, they, they went, had a long time in the wilderness before they found their David Cameron to get them back on the road again. That's what Labour is going through now. David Davids or David. I, yeah, I, I kind of, David Davis. Uh, yeah. that's, that's him. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm the only American, by the way, who tells British tourists like how their politics are doing. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. How is that guy doing? Uh, so it's not like everyone in the UK is even aware of who these people are. But, oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating, Steve. Like, it's kind of like a he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Boris benefited from this explosion because you threw this new new this revolutionary issue into British politics, Brexit, totally changed everything, changed his own party. He was able to fire the members of his party he didn't like and get new ones that liked him. That's great. Yep. Uh, that's part of the reason I think he'll remain in power still. Totally threw off what the Labour Party threw off his opposition, you know. And um, I mean, to some extent, Trump did that to our politics. So it's fascinating, but it's also a little bit of die by the sword because now, yeah, the loss could be heavy too, when you you know you benefited from that and now everyone's in an uproar but there's got to be something around. else there's two years to go um boris 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 is an attention magnet he mm-hmm. there are skeletons there are <laughs> enough skeletons in his closet that you may as well assume that he's part of some sort of like um hit squad or something like he's like it, <laughs> there will be a scandal at he's every quarter the- and it, it will take its turn I, yeah if, like John Major lost because he became the leader of the Sleaze Party. Effectively, yeah. that's what's going to happen now under Boris Johnson. Like I, we didn't even talk about how he tried to protect one of his politicians who was caught for blatant bribery, and oh. Boris tried to pull a stroke to protect him. These kind of things they add up. Like they do add up. They do, no matter how popular he is, even if he's the face of Brexit, people yeah. will start to get fed up with this Egypt and his silly blonde hair, and like, oh yeah, but. Maybe he's not actually for us. Eventually, that message will get through. Yeah, that's why my guess, and I'm, a, I'm across the pond, is stays as leader of the party through the next election. That's a, a viable guess. And that's what Zelensky got him. His appearance with Zelensky got him and, and other things and his and his lack of opposition within the party, um, because the most important thing a political leader. I mean, look, here's what a positive I'll say about Johnson. Um, the most important attribute of a political leader here or on that side of the pond is hold your party be the leader of your party and he's losing some of that but there's but the the biggest and most important thing of that is have no rival and uh you know carter lost a lot because of ted kennedy and then and ford lost a lot because of ronald reagan and those two examples are big in america and uh, so i see him staying there I do think that and and his quirkiness gets him through that, too. But when you start talking about 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, 2024. Yeah, that's a lot to run ahead of the scandals and people catching up and, quite frankly, getting a little bored. You know, I don't think there is any way Trump could have lost an election in, say, 2017. They still had this media attention that was unbelievable 
but you, a lot of that slowed down too. You know what? We don't have to print everything he says every day anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that, that slowed down and you lose that, you, you know, so that these are all, Hey, listen, I mean, this is all just speculative talk and things like that. We could be wrong. Sure. I mean, bars could end up winning the next election as well and, and continuing to go. I mean, that is a possibility. Like the systemic things might hold back the opposition too much that they won't be able to win the seats and bars will limp through with the 20 or 30 majority. That's possible. Yeah. Cause you're still Who voting knows? for your there. You're voting for it. It would be like if the Congressman elected the president here, exactly. You're That's voting, how it works. Yeah. You might like your local member and, um, and vote for them, but um, most importantly, dislike the alternative even more is usually how it true. works. True. And then those third parties get involved. Like uh, we talked about yeah. the liberal Democrats very often, they could be spoilers and where they're then and, and still not 74 election in the UK. They get um, as many, almost as many votes as two of the other parties of a great TV campaign and get something like 10, 12 or something seats in the, in the parliament and totally make the election weird. But uh, you know, you have things like that, that we don't, we don't do here. Well, hey, this has been great. It, you know, if there's anything else that you felt like we missed and you want to say, great. Otherwise, we can we can wrap it up. Last that we didn't talk about the Eurovision. Let's just give that a brief oh, shout out. Eurovision, <laughs> yes, 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 of course. Yeah, uh, six years ago, if you'd asked me was a Eurovision fan, I would have scoffed and said, no way, that's a lot of crap. <laughs> but now, um, through what on politics, and we covered it every year with our friend Donald <laughs> Mulligan, we became big super fans, and I've kept that on, and I really enjoyed it this year. Um, unsurprisingly, Ukraine won. We managed uh, the, mm-hmm. the year, so um, the they they won because the the public of of Europe voted for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the big question is now is because the winner is supposed to host it in the following year. Uh, Ukraine are insisting they'll host it in Kiev, but everyone else is kind of talking out of the side of their mouth, going, "When are we going to tell them?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's not going to be there. Funnily no. enough, speaking of the UK, so for last year, the UK got zero points. The first time mm. the country ever got zero points in the new system. <laughs> um, we hated them all that much because of Brexit, effectively. They, they did really well this year. They actually oh. they, they came second. And in fact, they might have even won if it wasn't for the world, but the rest of, the, of Europe backing Ukraine. So that was pretty interesting. And I like the Norway. I like to give the wolf the banana. That was fun. Yeah, that was a fun song. If you haven't checked that out, guys, definitely listen to that <laughs> one or watch the video. Actually, more importantly, it was loads of fun. That's Bruce's vote, but I got Scandinavian DNA, so that's fine. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to hear that, and I, you know, it's it's really been great. So it's been great having you on, Steve Byrne, former host of the What M Politics. But again, you know, there's a big archive there, so check it out. Um, you know, in a way, when you have a poli- when you have a evergreen podcast because you're discussing political issues that don't always change it never dies um and uh you know i hope now that you're not doing the podcast we can have you on more often sure anytime give me a shot i'm sure the the politics of the uk will will stay interesting whatever about the <laughs> politics of ireland yeah you never know uh great great having you on thanks steve thanks <laughs>